Welcome back. War Horse Podcast, episode 20. The first in the Epoch Diogelos. The website is goldengoatguild.net. Golden Goat Guild is the handle on Instagram. Andrew Edwards. You can find me on Twitter. If you want to support the podcast, you will need to navigate your way via either the website or the link tree um, on Instagram over to Patreon, pick a tier, sign up, and I will greatly appreciate that support. As you may notice, I am not coming to you from the warhorse. I am coming to you from the road I have traveled long distance through many portals. I suffered the indignity of being shorn of my weapons. I did, however, land in a place that has a Whole Foods. So as you know, you know as a Warhorse listener, crucial to avoid restaurants while on the road because you never know when someone is going to increase your odds of ingesting some fecal matter at the worst possible time. So, trade-offs. I'm on a very exciting and interesting mission, so um, I'm not, not even that concerned about being unarmed. So a few things about the structure. I wanted to share a couple thoughts. Uh, the structure of this, um, these dialogue episodes. The first being, I plan on offering some commentary either before the discussion, maybe interjected in the middle, and you know, equally likely at the end one or the other as well uh we may eventually moved into move into uh, a point in time where we may have like a rolling cast revolving cast of characters who may be interested in providing commentary on the discussion that was just had hopefully that makes sense the second point in terms of structure is to say that there will be no boundaries. Um, if anything that I or one of my guests says offends somebody somewhere, be certain that none of us give a shit and we're not going to do anything about it. And we're quite certain of what we're saying, quite certain of what the stakes are, 
who our enemies are, and um, the importance of dialogue. Dialogue to me appears to be, you know, in the way that a marriage becomes this third entity between men and women, men and women. Dialogue itself is a sort of third thing um, arising, you know, out of conversation between two parties. I think that's it in terms of structure. So, our first discussion is between myself and James Bowery. James Bowery is, first of all, a friend of mine and a man of exceptional intellectual prowess and strength of character. He's a polymath entrepreneur, internet pioneer, worked in many different fields, technical, the humanities, and um, I have been blessed with um, having been the beneficiary of James's generosity of spirit over the years, and so I'm very honored to that he would have this discussion with me, and I'm very excited to offer it to you guys. The jumping off point for us is a novel called Camp 38, which is attributed to the author Jill von Conan, published by Sovereign Press, 1984. From the back of the book, the events of Camp 38 are set in the present world at the present time, but radically different values require the people to have no social relationships with those outside. From San Francisco as a point of departure, Valerie, just out of UC Berkeley, is, quote, brought in by Kirk. She discovers a people who view the highest current civilizations of the outside world as those outside view the grossly primitive. The action of Camp 38 provides Valerie with a detective story where the mystery to be unraveled clue by clue is the place of woman and of man in Camp 38's advanced society. She also becomes involved in putting together a fascinating complex of pieces before discovering how the superior society can exist without being destroyed by the more primitive, quote, outside world that surrounds it. So James in discussion makes some parallels with Ayn Rand to orient readers. And I believe he's doing that to sort of point us toward the idea that um, in the way Ayn Rand describes her worldview, her political economy, her uh, the sort of framework that she envisions for society, Camp 38 is doing something similar. However, it's uh, radically different. We're not talking about um, base or, or even edgy libertarianism here. We're talking about 
a level of depth and mystery far, far, far surpassing any of that, which you will, you know, will be very clear to you in the discussion. For those of you, you know, subscribers who get to the second half, um, this will be clarified a little bit, although it's more, it's more like the mystery continues to evolve or, or blossom or deepen in terms of sovereign press, because it's sort of a mysterious entity. I had hoped that James might have, might give me the down low on what exactly is going on with sovereign press or what went on. But he gives me an even better answer than that in some ways. So Sovereign Press has published um, a number of other volumes um, along, pertaining to a variety of subjects, really, but connected thematically and um, somewhat in terms... Of, I've not read them all. I've actually... I don't know how many there are. I think there are nearly 10, and I think I've read three or four um, which we do not discuss in this in this in our talk. So I'm going to leave it there, um, and I'm going to kick you over to this conversation with James Bowery and myself. DMs are open, emails are open. Let me know what you guys think. Thanks very much, and uh, we'll be back soon. Adios, amigos. Okay. So James, let's start with Camp 38. My favorite. Your, is it your favorite? It's my favorite too. Yeah, it's my favorite. Um, I don't know how you want to approach it. If you want to do a little background or if you want to go straight into the story, but whatever you feel like is probably what we should go with. Well, maybe a way to approach it depends upon what exactly your audience is familiar with, but if you were to take Anne Rand and make her honest, which yeah. means, you know, being actually serious about individual sovereignty, um, instead of uh, Galt's Gulch, you'd have Camp 38. And yep. the, the difference basically boils down to the individual sovereignty that's portrayed in Camp 38 is not money-based or exchange-based. It's based upon the natural right of force that every one of us has by virtue of the fact that we can move about in the world and act in the world. So you start with force and from force you can pretty much derive everything else about relations. As long as you go back to the origin of nervous systems, 
they don't really talk about it in those terms in CAT 38, but my theoretic underpinning, um, which I've kind of developed over the years, <clears throat> is based on the idea that, and, and it, it is coherent with theirs, their views. Uh, the, the, when I say there, I mean the uh, sovereign press set of folk literature that Camp 38 is a part of. Um, views sex as a platform of or a plateau of being, sexual being, as one of six levels, starting with time, going to space, then to physical force, mass energy, and then finally you get to the stage of life which has cellular reproduction or self-cloning. And then self-cloning is basically just eat or be eaten kinds of force. You take that and build upon that to get sex. And the reason you get sex from that is the eat or be eaten clone army level of life, <clears throat> level of life, which is cellular life. You know, you go back to mitotic reproduction, just normal uh, single cellular animals that reproduce by dividing. That eat or be eaten stage of life is just continual war. So we are all built upon a, a, plat <clears throat> a platform of, of war, if you will. Every one of our bodies is a ma massive clone army that has specialized members. So it's a massive civilization, if you will. But the specialization that achieves sex sacrifices this ability to simply clone oneself for ever greater extent and power for love. And in that sacrifice, one also has to accept mortality or death. And that plateau of sex goes back 600 million years to the Cambrian explosion. The Cambrian explosion was the point where male intrasexual selection became a concomitant factor with predation, which is one of the reasons you see a lot of shells arising as defensive measures at that point in life's evolution. You also have various things to penetrate shells. So you have predation and you have male intersexual selection, which means that male versus male combat is taking place to limit gene flow between what zoologists and other kinds of uh, biologists call deems. In other words, you've got uh, ecological ranges within which there is enough intra-breeding that you can speciate. So what male intersexual selection did, it made it so that males could restrict the gene flow between deems and that increased the rate of speciation, which is why you had a, an explosion of speciation at the 600 million year ago boundary 
when sex finally reached its full development as an evolutionary plateau. So all of the all of the, the stuff that say Anne Rand was involved with, although she touched on you know sexual things in kind of a uh, and a travesty of, of what reality is. She didn't deal with things like a man, say John Galt, going up to the president of whatever corrupt regime there was and challenging him to go out into nature and deal with each other as males have dealt with each other for six or nearly a billion years. And Camp 38 deals with that, that original source of male intersexual selection uh, and builds a, a world around that which harkens back to what I see as a, 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 a human potential for individual sovereignty that is far more authentic than anything that's portrayed by the libertarians or others that, that claim the phrase individual sovereignty. And they achieve this by creating, like I talk about Galt's Gulch, they have Camp 38 instead, which is a sequestered environment wherein they can operate with each other under these agreements that's an attempt to put into place to formalize at a uh, say social contract level or a moral regime level a moral community level an acceptance a yes saying to that which created sex and that which created the vast diversity of animal and plant life that we see as a result of sex so that's the sort of the general philosophical framework that is portrayed in a in a fictional form but it's only really semi-fictional because there actually was a and potentially still is a camp 38 or one or more camp 38s around the world that are attempting to live according to this yes saying to sex and in that process of that yes saying to sex, there is a recognition that there has to be a sequestration um, away from what people normally think of as civilization, which is, in this view, a regression back to the mitotic or eat or be eaten level of evolution, the pre-sexual level of evolution, where ultimately you're dealing with simply group organisms that are eating each other one in one way or the other. Um, so the idea is to try to avoid regressing in evolution and then continue on and build upon what we can conceivably call the moral animal. Our morals build upon sex by saying yes to sex in its full manifestation. 
And in that yes saying to sex, we establish a moral community where we refuse to engage in group force against individuals unless there is reason to believe the individual is in some manner violating this yes saying to the individual's sovereignty. So that's, I suppose I've kind of rounded everything out in a fairly yeah. abstract way, but I hope I didn't, you know, take things. I was trying to root, the, root this in, in the, in the uh, Atlas Shrugged, uh, you know, I don't know, framework to show right. how that how, how that's misled people in a in a very and it's really a tragic way, um, and it isn't just it isn't just Anne Rand, but the entire libertarian movement has at its root violated this aspect of masculinity and what we're seeing right now, and for example, the monopolies in Silicon Valley and the mass immigration um, that has been supported by the libertarians is yep. uh, a result of this, <clears throat> this failure to recognize the individual male's power, moral right to be able to defend his territory and develop that into, a, into an entire, say, political economy, if you will, although economy gets to be kind of a funny term when you start talking about mediums of exchange, etc. Yeah. Well, what, maybe it would be, tell me what you think about if we, if we pivot from what you just said over to progress and poverty as a sort of, um, a way to address that for the audience because eventually when we get into um, you know the female uh, right to kill their offspring sort of you know is the is the counterbalance to the taking away of the male uh, inherent moral right to decide what life gets to continue that is to kill um, which you know that's that's you know it's got that um it's sexier if you will but i think in trying you know in attempting over the years to wrap my head around what is kind of i again a not not a perfect term but a worldview kind of the um the aspect of how the society uh, even though it's sequestered as you know how that functions logistically i recall in the novel um which for my audience i you may not be able to find a copy, but um, you may be able to find oh, a copy. There's a copy online on, at fairchurch.org. Um, I okay. believe I provided you with a link to that, but I will make sure that you get that link. Okay, then I'll put it, I'll make sure the audience can find it. But that book is, is you got to read it. It's, it's a must read. It's like nothing else that I've read. And I was going to say, in the context of the novel, I don't want to give too much, I don't want to give away the ending, but they had a way, a sort of benefactor situation, which uh, sustained it insofar as it was sort of an experiment. Is that fair to say? 
Well, in the way the book was portrayed, it wasn't so much an experiment uh, that had been created by a benefactor as it was a, the, the benefactor was in this sense, there, there was a, uh, a logging company yeah. established in Frontier America that had, that had uh, a culture that had sort of evolved its, it, on its own independent of the company to resolve disputes between uh, the loggers. Right. And uh, not just the loggers, but also there were uh, some Chinese workers that had been imported from China as slave labor for the, for the railroads that ended up in a different part of the, of the forest, but were a related community. And there were some conflicts that arose um, from time to time and eventually they came up with a set of rules that they could use to resolve their conflicts. Since the the lumberjacks were used to having kind of a mano-a-mano way of of resolving conflicts um, and the Chinese were not as well equipped for those kinds of direct close quarter conflicts there was a point where a, a, a particular Chinese man uh, named Lin Si was being bullied by one of the lumberjacks, and the other lumberjacks didn't really like this behavior because they just didn't think it was, there was something instinctively about it they didn't like, uh, having to do with there being a fair fight. They wanted to have, right. have fair fights. And they did. It's, there's kind of an ineffable aspect to the idea of fairness that's portrayed, where Lin Si was able to essentially say, "I will face this man if you gentlemen will guarantee that there's a fair fight." And since they already see, saw that this big hulking lumberjack, who was kind of a bully, was you know not very, uh, I'll, I'll just say. Know, morally acceptable you know, as a behavior, they established some rules that turned out to be what I, I believe are, are hearkening back to our Paleolithic evolution in going back, say, 40,000 years ago up to, say, maybe 10,000 years ago where wolves began to co-evolve with humans in the Eurasian areas producing what we now think of as dogs. But in the process of doing that, it provided a way for individual male heads of households to become independent of human hunting packs and become head of a simple household consisting of a mate, children, and co-evolved wolves or domesticated dogs, what we now think of as dogs. And this, every man an alpha, if you will, where the the man became an alpha head of a hunting pack of wolves, is what I think reawakened it reawakened the individual male combat that had been the source of 
the Cambrian explosion. After a hiatus in the primate line going back about six million years where there was enough cognitive capacity to engage in conspiracy to form gangs. And you'll see this behavior in, for example, chimpanzees, where they will engage in a lot of gang warfare. And uh, E.O. Wilson, the, the naturalist who has originated sociobiology and has studied insects, social insects, talks about six, six million years ago as being sort of a turning point in primate evolution where gang formation and gang warfare started to reassert itself uh, as an eat or be eaten kind of evolutionary path. This isn't just in the case of the primate line going back to the chimpanzee human last common ancestor. You'll have things, you'll have other pack hunting animals that have a nascent form of this, and this is one of the reasons why wolves um, were in a good position to assist humans to get out of this sort of eat or be eaten mode of evolution by becoming our hunting packs where we could become individual humans and then recover that ancient sexual being uh, path of evolution. So what, what I see happening between 40,000 and, you know, say about 10,000 years ago is that as you started getting a greater portion of the Eurasian area in a mode of, of life where there were smaller households, there were smaller groups down to the point where you had simple households where it was just simply a, a man, woman, children, and, and their dogs. Uh, you would have conflicts over winter calories going out in the winter hunting for meat. And if you found yourself in a situation where there was not a sufficient amount of game, it would probably be because of the fact that there was another head of household with their canids eating the winter calories. And so you would end up hunting each other, a human versus human, in a mutual hunt in nature. There would not be it would not be any close combat. It wouldn't be a cage match. It wouldn't be a boxing ring. It wouldn't even be what they call what people portrayed as home ganga, where you go off into a you know say a, a cloth that's laid down and you're supposed to stay within the cloth area and then fight it out to the death. Now this was a situation where you actually had fabricated your own toolkit, your own weapons, etc., and you would engage in strategic actions, hunting each other as you would an animal. But it would be individual versus individual, perhaps assisted by your canid packs. And the uh, Tale of Lindsay in the Camp 38 section talks about a rule where Two individuals go into a wilderness area that has not been logged clean. You would each be equipped with a sword that's about 10 inches and 50 feet of strong cordage. 
and one of you at most would come out alive. Um, with you know a minor exception in, in the case where there was an agreement that one of you would forever be shielded by the other one that shielding is another another aspect of the society that's related to the behavior of a head of household protecting those in his household that he sees as being particularly or inspiring his, his protective instincts, you know, his, his mate and children, et cetera, or perhaps elders, um, or anybody else that he sees as being valuable. So the idea that you have a way of allocating limited calories for sustaining life by a a, mo a selection mode that is based upon a very ancient selection criteria is, I think, very central to the whole, the whole scheme or the whole uh, I appeal, I'll, I'll put it that way, of the CAP38 system.